Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. On this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with Executive Editor Mike Sherman. And uh, Mike is here because we've been on the road with our friends at KGOU, uh, Dick Pryor and Logan Layden. Uh, Mike, can you tell us about uh, the roadshow and the listening sessions and what we've been doing? It seems like eons ago, when actually it was in the early outset of the pandemic, that we had an idea to uh, ask Oklahomans how Oklahoma was working for you. I remember it, maybe you remember it this way, Ted, that we were looking at representation. It really sort of started there. What kind of representation were they getting from their elected leaders in the House and the state and the Senate in Oklahoma City? And we we set course to try to go out into the state in some areas uh, where— there would be um, a good conversation. We've landed our first three um, in college towns, and it's been interesting so far. Well, uh, you're right. As I recall, we started out uh, because redistricting was on the table, right? And we were wondering how Oklahoma might be different if our legislature looked more like our population, right? And and uh, in concrete ways, we were curious, you know, would there be more of this, less of that, that kind of thing. But it morphed a little as it uh, went along because we couldn't uh, do the meetings in person until uh, the pandemic subsided, and that was after redistricting was over. So uh, we, we set out. So far, we uh, have been to, as you said, three towns, Weatherford, Lawton, and Ada, uh, let's start at the beginning. Maybe recount what we learned in Weatherford. Weatherford's interesting. Um, one thing I, I learned there was a comment from uh, one of the participants who reminded us that uh, people in the outlying areas outside the Oklahoma City's metro areas of Tulsa and Oklahoma City know more, a lot more, about those of us who live in these suburban areas than we know about them. They, they remind us. They come in and shop in, in the cities. They, they attend concerts and sporting events. Um, they see how the road, if they make the trip a couple, you know, four or five times a year, they see how road work is progressing or not. It's not like a bunch of people in Oklahoma City regularly, routinely drive to Weatherford. So that was uh, uh, eye-opening. Of course, the other one was their serious concerns about the health and well-being of small town Oklahoma. They just see it, the, the communities around them, they see them shriveling up and dying. And one of the things they talked about uh, that I thought was interesting on that point was uh, really the loss of uh, kind of the the family business and, uh, you know, downtown sole proprietorships and that even the businesses that are doing well in the small towns are, uh, franchises or large corporate chains. Um, they did notice, though, in Weatherford, one of the things they pointed out that I thought was good was the uh, importance of the college as an economic driver. How did that strike you? Right. I mean, that is the reason for uh, one of our one of our uh, uh, friends who showed up said, uh, going back to the railroad, 
uh, every town had to have a reason for existence. You know, what was it that this town was contributing? And Weatherford clearly it's to educate um, post high school graduates. And that looked like the university is still thriving. Um, the, the arena that we were in was state of the art. So um, that was interesting uh, how much the, the, the town revolved around the, the, the school. Really not that new. We also learned, I think you remarked about this, is the um, really the death of farming and the, the multiplier there. Um, you, can't, you can't farm 300 acres anymore. You have to farm 10 times 300 acres. Or, 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 and, and the cost of the machinery to get that done is prohibitive. And it's really driving families out of the farming business. And we knew some of that, but just hearing it from them and hearing some of the implications down the road was alarming. I thought one of the interesting points that came out of the Weatherford conversation, too, was that uh, as they see it, they feel as though rural Oklahoma is... Uh, forever underrepresented in the legislature because there's enough population in the cities, uh, in Tulsa and Oklahoma City metros, that they feel like uh, they are always outvoted or or can always be outvoted. And it uh, seemed to me they were saying they didn't feel like they had as strong a voice as the city dwellers. I think that's an interesting thing for us to look at. Because I, I actually thought it was the opposite. If you look at how districts are drawn, um, in order to make a House district or make a Senate district, House more than the Senate, you have to draw from, you have to draw out of population centers now you had to make up enough area to, to get enough people into a House district. Sometimes you have to pull slices of Lawton pie-sized shapes of Lawton out into this out into the countryside. Um, and you look at, that's what, when you start seeing gerrymandered districts, that's what they're called, gerrymandered, um, you see these pie slices rather than rectangles. And what I'd like to look at is if that is in fact true, if, if, our, if the elected leaders are headquartered more in suburban, urban areas, or they actually head, headquartered in rural areas, but still have suburban representation. Think of Yukon. Think of um, North Northwest Oklahoma City. Um, the district in Edmond also included Pottawatomie County. That happens a lot in Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Edmond. I'd like to see how it happens in Lawton. But that gave me something. That was food for thought for me. Well, and then, of course, our second stop was Lawton. Uh, we were at Cameron University, and that was uh, a different kind of conversation. That was a lot of people who were really um, concerned about the effects of laws that, um, and to their mind, really impact LGBTQ um, Oklahomans. A lot of concern about the bathroom bill and how that's affecting uh, uh, trans youth gay and lesbian youth. Um, a lot of concern about um, whether Oklahoma is welcome to them uh, on, on many levels. And so, that yeah, that was very different. And then concern about downtown, you know, whatever happened to downtown law. Or the lack of or downtown. Or the lack of downtown, yeah. right? Um, however, we also learned, and, and you pointed this out, they shared some ways they thought the city was actually 
moving in a direction they gave the the city government was moving in a direction that gave them an idea that they were being heard and listened to um sort of budding not really sprouting but budding yeah i got i got the sense that uh there was still some skepticism there that uh they were concerned that although the city council had talked about a diversity commission that kind of thing that um it may turn out to just be lip service so they were they were kind of taking a wait-and-see approach to all that. Right, and homelessness. So one of the, the stark reminders for us was that, yes, there are homeless in Lawton and, and a, an alarmingly growing number, but the services that you see in the in Oklahoma City and Tulsa for uh, people who don't have homes are not, are not available in Lawton. And that means places like libraries, um, obviously schools, are picking up the slack. And then our third stop was in Ada at um, yet again a different kind of conversation from the first two. Right. And and there was a really good turnout in Ada. Um, I got a strong sense of community there. You know, um, uh, they they kind of talked about how they, they operated in silos, but when they were together – it was sort of a network you could see. Their, their big concerns um, that I remember is, uh, and this has been written about here and there, but Sasakwa, a small town to the east of Ada, went without water for six months, just recently restored. But you, without water, no water. Um, Puerto Rico, by the way, right now, no water, no energy, no, no electricity, anything else. A hurricane of epic proportions hit that island. Uh, that's not what happened in Sasakwa. The wells just ran dry, and nobody was able to do anything for six months. So that's alarming in Oklahoma. Another one, that, and and uh, you you zeroed in on this too, is just the um, the foster care crisis. How it's felt there. Uh, a woman who works with foster families says that uh, caseworkers are driving two hundred miles to. Uh, to um, serve their clients who can't be uh, fostered in, in their communities and have to be sent as far as Guymon. So something's not working in, in the foster care system in Ada, and it gives you the idea probably out in uh, similar kind of communities. Yeah, no doubt. Now we have uh, we have four more stops on the tour, right? Where else, uh, where else is this show headed? Yeah, uh, it's going to South Oklahoma City. Uh, the Yale Theater, and that is this is coming up Thursday. A week from Thursday. I'm, I'm sorry, a week 29th. from... 29th. Yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Thanks, Ted. And then um, in October, we're going to be um, in Tulsa at the Greenwood Cultural Center and at the Douglas Auditorium also in October, and then one more stop in Okmulgee. Um, these have been great so far, and uh, shout out to you and Dick Pryor. Uh, you guys pulled this together, and, and Dick, sort of serves as the Phil Donahue of our group. He's a moderator, and he draw, he's drawn out some really good conversations uh, in these three areas. And we've learned a lot. I've got a pad full of notes. Well, uh, thanks, Mike. We hope uh, we see uh, more people and more interesting conversations on the, the second half of the listening session tour. What do you think, if you were to, to see one one common denominator, one big takeaway in the three we've done so far, what is it? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, you know, uh, you, you referenced it. Is Are these Oklahoma communities producing leaders? Uh, 
You know, uh, that was a real problem underlined in ADA that the banks are, con- you know, and leaders too will become elected leaders or city leaders. Um, uh, the, traditionally, they come from business owners. But what happens when the local bank is bought out by a franchise? What happens when the grocery store is gone and it's Walmart instead? And the manager of Walmart doesn't stick around in Ada. He gets transferred to Skokie, Illinois, or Annapolis, Maryland. And so uh, there's a leadership gap. Where are elected leaders coming from in our small towns in the towns around Oklahoma, are they are still in the process. Is there a good farm club for them? That's a question that came up to me. Yeah, that's a, an excellent point and definitely a common thread where we've been so far. All right, Mike Sherman, executive editor of Oklahoma Watch. Uh, thanks for talking to us about this uh, project we're doing in cooperation with KGOU. After we're done with the tours, you'll be able to read our take and story ideas we got on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Lionel Ramos is with us. He covers race and equity at Oklahoma Watch. He just uh, published an update about the Mexican consulate that we reported on a couple of months ago. That was supposed to open in Oklahoma City this year. Lionel, what's the latest on the Mexican consulate? Two two things, Ted. Uh, The first is um, probably the most important because it has directly affects the other. Uh, New consul general at the Mexican consulate in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, Ambassador Carlos E. Giral Cabrales. Uh, he was appointed uh, last year in April. And then partially because of that, the Mexican consulate that was supposed to open in Oklahoma City this year has been pushed to an unspecified time in, in 2023. So uh, why the new leadership and, and how does that affect the date? Yeah, so the Mexican government rotates its foreign diplomats around the world uh, every two to four years. And those who've served for a long time can be promoted to the rank of ambassadors, kind of how it works. Uh, the rotation is, this particular rotation took a little longer because in the past three years we've been through the pandemic. Uh, and that new leadership means a new administration for him and, you know, a new staff and all that stuff. They kind of have to get reoriented. And so uh, how is this... Uh new person in Little Rock affecting the timeline in Oklahoma City? Yeah, so uh, basically he's picking up where the last consul general left off. Uh, uh, His name is Consul uh, Quilantan. And uh, it is, they they have to adjust. They have to uh, bring in new staff, get everyone re-acclimated. And really, there's a big uh, backlog in appointments and uh, in serv- and needed services, uh, many people from Oklahoma and surrounding states go to Arkansas for services. So they have to catch up, frankly. Okay. And so will, will, the, um, will the consulate in Oklahoma City uh, sort of be under the one in Little Rock, or how are they connected? Yeah. It'll, so they'll be – they won't be directly, you know, tethered to each other. They will – the Oklahoma City consulate will have an entire new consul general, uh, which will be selected by the Mexican government. Uh, they will be working together. Obviously, they will be sharing information and stuff like that. Uh, but it won't be Carlos y Giral Cabrales in Oklahoma City. He's going to stay in Little Rock, which is the regional kind of umbrella uh, consulate. And then someone will be appointed to be in Oklahoma City and basically do his job here. 
Okay. So uh, do we have any idea yet who that might be? We do not. Uh, I, I asked the, the new consul general, and he said that the process really is too early for, for any kind of details. Uh, they're still trying to pick the handful of people that they're going to select from, uh, and that's also true for the location, for example, in Oklahoma City. So um, with the, the new person in Little Rock um, trying to get acclimated and get up to speed and get caught up on uh, whatever he's inherited, uh, that always takes a little while. So just sort of put the Oklahoma City project on a shelf until uh, he gets his bearings, it sounds like. It, no sense at all, though, of when that uh, when the Oklahoma City project might move forward. Did you did you get a sense that uh, it might not happen at all? I have to say that uh, when I went to a press conference that he hosted uh, the last day of August uh, at Oklahoma City Community College or Triple C, um, he kept reminding people, you know, like if everything goes well, if everything goes well. It looks like we'll have a, a, a consulate in Oklahoma City. Uh, when I called him and asked, he says that they're committed. The Mexican government is committed. Uh, it's The decisions are made mostly by them. There's uh, obviously some conversations with the U.S. State Department that have to be, uh, that they have to kind of sort out. Um, but he indicated, and this is a little vague, right, uh, that by the end of the first quarter of next year, they will have more information. They plan to have more information and, and some ready updates. Uh, what those updates will be is really unclear. So kind of uh, from the front burner to the back burner for now, and uh, we'll see what may happen. How, how is that going to affect uh, people in Oklahoma City? Obviously, we have not had a uh, an embassy of any kind uh, or any kind of consulate services here in Oklahoma City previously. So it doesn't change anything immediately, but uh, the benefits of having one here uh, are delayed. Maybe uh, you can remind us uh, why people are having to travel all the way to Little Rock. Yeah. So, you know, you make a good point. Uh, first of all, people, Mexicans in Oklahoma have been advocating for a Mexican consulate for over 30 years. Um, I, I wrote that in, in the first story that I wrote uh, last year. Um, and what they need are, I mean, simple things, really. Update their identif- their Mexican identification documents. That includes their, their voter ID cards, uh, their, their uh, consulate IDs, um, and as well as their passports. Uh, they also have, you know, their own versions of, of what would be a, a social security Um number, which is really an identification number. It's their voter card. Uh, right now, anyone that wants consulate services has to drive to Dallas or Little Rock, which are the two closest consulates. They're both three hours away or more. Uh, and if you are someone in, if you are a Mexican national in the United States and you don't have documentation and you get pulled over, that's a risk. So that's a three hour risk in either direction that you will have to decide to take. And, and once that happens, there's no telling uh, what happens after that, whether people get, uh, you know, sent back to Mexico or or put in ICE detention for an undetermined amount of time. Uh, people have to risk their livelihoods, frankly, to be able to get their identification cards right, as it stands in Oklahoma. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. We'll look forward to uh, another update maybe early in 2024 as uh, the uh, Mexican 
government gets that sorted out. <laughs> uh, you can read Lionel's latest story about the proposed Mexican consulate in Oklahoma City and all his other investigative work on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Ashland Huffman covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. She had a recent story about a, a very significant increase in violence at a private prison in Oklahoma. Ashland, tell us a little about the prison and how you came upon this story. Right. So the Davis Correctional Facility is a private owned prison in Holdenville. It houses about 1600 male offenders um, who are deemed medium to maximum security risks. Those are the people who have the ability to cause um, harm in society. So I've found the story because someone actually sent me a tip. That's how a lot of our stories are found. So when someone sent me the tip, I decided to look into it and file an open records request to see what kind of data there was. So uh, you mentioned the open records request. How were you able to determine that there'd been uh, an increase in stabbings at this particular prison? So I filed an open records request on August 1st with the Hughes County EMS, and they gave me all the calls to the prison from 2018 to 2022. So I then put all of that data into an Excel sheet and then filtered the data just for stabbings. And it showed all the stabbings from 2018 to 2022. And when I saw that, I recounted several times because it was a significant increase in 2022 with just being seven months in. The data only reflected January to July 31st. Now, in your story, you wrote that uh, in that seven month time frame, there had been at least 18 stabbings at the prison. Uh, the three of those were fatalities, a uh, combination of both staff and inmates uh, who were victims of those. Uh, now, have, have there been more or, or is there a suspicion that there's been more that uh, you did not write about in the story? So I have been told by EMS that there have been more stabbings at the facility. So the open records is only through July 31st. I filed a second one to get the rest of the data, but it was not available in time for the story. So I've been told there's more, but I'm not able to confirm it until we get that records refilled. Okay, so we're looking at maybe uh, additional occurrences after July 31st. Now, uh, sometimes we write stories and there's uh, additional information we have that doesn't make it into the story for one reason or another. What uh, Was that the case with this one? Yes. So back to the open records, I filed an open records request with CoreCivic after I was told that they were having significant staffing issues that could contribute to the violence. Here at Oklahoma Watch, we were trying to figure out why 2022 has had such a large increase in stabbings this year. Um, what has happened over the last year for that to quadruple, double the last couple of years. So I followed an open records with CoreCivic to figure out their staffing limitations, what's going on. Um, and their lawyer, Dan Struck, actually called me to kind of get an idea on what I wanted. And that actually hasn't been fulfilled either. So I'm waiting on that to find out what their staffing levels actually are. I know they have about 20 vacant positions now, but at I'd like to see over time if their staffing levels have dropped. And uh, Core Civic is the company that uh, operates that prison. They're a large uh, right. publicly traded company, right. do business all over the country, uh, operate lots and lots of prisons, right? Right, yeah. And uh, we knew there were at least 20 
openings for staff in Holdenville. That's what they have advertised on their website, right? But that, that was the only only place we were able to get any kind of number on how bad the staffing shortages might be. Correct. And CoreCivic didn't go into detail about their staffing. They did say that they're trying to get staffing levels up, but they did not give any details onto how low their staffing levels are. I did talk to a former corrections officer who said at times he would be the only corrections officer on a pod supervising between 100 to 240 inmates on his own. What, uh, by the time you get done with this story, what do you think the main takeaways were? The main takeaway is, there's several, but I'd say the main one is what has changed over the last year at the Davis Correctional Facility. I know they've gotten a new warden over the last year, two years. I know that their staffing levels are dropped, but what is contributing to this increase in violence? Everyone has a theory. It could be low staffing. I've been told gang violence, but nobody actually knows what's happening. And so that's kind of what my question is, is what's happening at Davis to get the stabbings this bad? Because they had the first fatality stabbing of a guard ever at that facility this year, and they've had 18-plus stabbings. Now, we've written a lot over the years about uh, staffing shortages at all prisons in Oklahoma, right. both both public uh, prisons, the state-run prisons, as well as the uh, private prisons. Uh, did you get a sense in the course of doing this story that Davis uh, was in worse shape than other prisons that, or uh, similar to other prisons? Did you get a feel for that at all? I was told throughout a couple of interviews that it's similar at both state and private prisons. Everyone is having a staffing shortage, um, but not every prison is having this alarming rate of stabbings either. Right. And, you know, a lot of times those uh, shortages have been attributed when we've asked in the past to, um, you know, especially low pay. Right. I mean, these these are jobs uh, that historically have not paid well. Now, public prisons, uh, correctional officers got a pretty good raise uh, recently. Did that Uh, carry over to any of the private prisons, do you know? It did. Representative Justin Humphrey said that private prisons also got that raise. However, he did say that the state is not able to determine if the private prisons used it for the intended purposes. So they did get the extra funds, but we have no way of knowing if they used it to raise staffing levels or how they actually used the money. Okay, so the state gave the money to the they prison did. operator and said, hey, this is, you know, give your guards a raise. Correct. Uh, but there's no way to determine if that's how they actually spent that money. Correct. And I filed an open records to get that as well to figure out if how they use the money. And when, when we have a private company like CoreCivic providing essentially a government function uh, right. of uh, running prisons, um, it, does that create... Different hurdles when it comes to getting information uh, than what we'd be able to get from publicly funded agencies? Yes. So, public funded agencies, it's a little bit easier because it's taxpayer funded to get open records stuff from them. I had a difficult time getting things from Core Civic, especially their media team. I couldn't get an interview with them. They didn't want to jump on a Zoom or a conference call. They have a team. They described it as they have a team to do research to get media their answers, but, you know, they did not have a way to determine what's been going on at Davis. They wouldn't confirm the amount of stabbings that they've had. They wouldn't talk about staffing levels other than their raising incentives and pay and things like that. So it has been a struggle to get open records fulfilled from them. 
But this is still a a publicly funded institution, right? I mean, they're uh, the state is paying them to perform uh, this governmental function of incarcerating people, and uh, that's all taxpayer money that's paying for that, right? I believe so. I did talk to DOC, the Department of Corrections, to get records from them, and they kept telling me I needed to go through CoreCivic. Um, from talking to CoreCivic's lawyer, it didn't seem like they kept records on a lot of things. A lot of the things that I've asked for from state prisons, they just did not seem like they had that. I'm still looking into that for future stories and to keep digging into the private prison business here in Oklahoma for sure. But uh, it has been a struggle to get records from them. All right. Well, thanks, Ashland. Uh, You can read Ashland's story about the problems uh, at the prison in Holdenville. Uh, You can also find all her contact information. If you have a criminal justice-related story idea for her, you can see all that at our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.